Welcome to Let's Humanize the Workplace. I know it's the first time in a while that I'm doing this show on a Monday, but because of the topic, because of what I'm seeing, I decided to do an extra show on top of the show of tomorrow. And it will be definitely be salty. There will be some hot sauce. There will, we will bring in some lemonade. We will bring in the spices with the audience later, with the guest speakers of later. But first, I do have to address the following. So um, there's something hurtful happening in the States, but I also want to bring in, shed a light towards what's happening in Europe as well. The hatred regarding towards the Asian Americans or the Asian community, it's not only happening in the US, it's also happening in Europe. Whereas the attacks are not as big as in the US, but I do want to say that ever since this this whole lockdown situation, there is the hatred is more is is getting more inside, and I just want to support you know the Asian community. I just want to support those who are feeling left out, those who are feeling the hatred, and those who are um, who are facing challenging times. This is my way of supporting and highlighting the news as well, and regarding the people that are announcing that this act that happened in Atlanta was not about racial, it wasn't a racism act or it wasn't an exclusion act or it was just somebody who was maybe sick or was having a bad day. Would you imagine if the person was somebody from the Middle Eastern? Or would you imagine if it was a black person doing that? We have to be real about racism. We have to discuss racism. And it's not upon the person who is attacking to share with us if that act is a racist act or is an act of racism. It's not upon you. And I also want to share something else regarding that. There are some people that are tired of the news regarding racism. Some people are tired to hear, listen, and read everything that has to do with racism. Well, well, I am tired of people experiencing racism from day to day. I am tired. Why I'm doing this show has to do with my past experience. It has to do with the experience of so many other people that felt underrepresented. And also know that I have a son, Orlando. He might be popping in later today. But I just want to know that the reason why I'm bringing this on and I'm advocating for this has to do with him. I don't want him to deal with this ism. It's hurtful. It's killing people from the inside. And it's killing it's killing so many people. So when you see somebody spreading hate, when you see something dehumanizing, speak up, show up, become an ally in your way. There are so many ways to become an ally, but speak up, do something because we are tired. We are tired of experiencing that. So going on towards the guest speakers of today, I have Janae Johnson, who I'm going to bring up, Sandra Camacho, and I have Daryl Perry, and we are going to have fun during this conversation, but please bear with me because I have to read their bio. And Janae, Janae Johnson operates as a leading human capital consultant, starting with the premise, promise of that everyone 
has genius within them, and Janae equips leaders and teams with proper tools. Then we have Sandra. Sandra Camacho's mission is to empower tech-savvy teams to catalyze change, fuel innovation, and drive positive impact by harnessing the full power of diversity, inclusivity, and creativity. And last but not least, Daryl Perry helps you to protect your health, wealth, and income from the unexpected while wearing a bow tie. He's also a social justice advocate. And I want to say welcome, everybody. So let's let's start with you, today. Why do we need to humanize a virtual workplace? So first of all, I am so excited to be here today. Um, thank you, Vivian, for the invite. And You're welcome. I'm excited about having this conversation with my fellow panelists. So, you know, I do get this question a lot. And in our work um, that's specifically focused around workplace equity, there's always the question of even when there are people inside of the organization who believe that it is important to humanize the workplace, you always have to have the numbers to appeal to that leader that is concerned about the bottom line, right? Mm -hmm. So like all of us, the four of us understand that it's the right thing to do. We understand it from our own experiences and we also understand it from just our consciousness about what happens in this world to people who um, maybe look like us, right? But for leaders, a lot of times they need to understand how it hits them in their pockets, mm -hmm. right? So. Some of the data that we often share, and the one that is extremely simple, is just about how when people don't feel included at work, studies have shown their productivity actually drops by a significant percentage. So if I don't feel like a human in my workplace, what that equates to, and, and listen, this is not the gospel according to Janae, this is what Gallup said. Gallup said that for every $10,000 in salary, that equates to 34% of that salary is what that company is losing on productivity. So let that sink in. That is 34% for every $10,000, $3,400, when I don't feel included, when I don't feel like I'm a part of the organization, when there is a lack of belonging in that organization, mm -hmm. that is what I'm losing. So when you actually do the numbers and you look at someone who has an average salary, US dollars of $100,000, and when that leader says, wait, then how much are we losing? Wait, how, wait, and then times how many people? And then, so you're saying that if I have a 10,000 person company, I'm losing like $52 million a year, just annual, just because people don't feel included. So now all of a sudden it's this, oh, we probably, we should, let's talk about what to do about this. Let's see what can be done. So even though we know it's the right thing to do from a humanity standpoint, sometimes you have to appeal to those leaders um, and, and actually assign value in numbers. You have to speak so, their lingo. Yeah, exactly. you have to speak their yeah. language to get there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Thank you, Janae. And Sandra? Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. I would say that in the era of COVID, we've seen that the nature of work has changed. And so with us moving to remote working, um, to not having those same social connections in the office, um, we see that the effects of exclusion are compounded. So to me, it is vital as we're moving to uh, kind of this new future where more of us are going to be working from home, where we're not going to be um, all in the same place where we're going to be geographically distributed, where there's going to be 
um, an incredible change even in the face of the workforce in terms of demographics, in terms of you know, the new generations that are coming in. Um, to me, it's, it's vital to follow for, for organizations to, to follow the, the nature of this change. Um, and I think uh, being able to factoring notions of inclusion, equity, diversity, not just in how people feel in the workplace, but even in processes and systems and tools and to really start seeing that as a layer across the entire business. Um, I think that's really what's going to drive change in the future. And that's what's going to differentiate the companies that are going to be kind of winning in the, in the future versus those that are going to get left behind. And, and so we've seen yeah. this in the past and so many, so many industries with uh, compounding changes, like uh, the arrival of mobile, um, those that didn't adapt to the change got left behind. And, and I see that it's the same with, with the changing nature of work and with the changing face of, of the workforce. I want to make one adjustment because you mentioned you think, you know, that it's going to be like that. You know, <laughs> as well sure. as all of us know, we know, we know. that it will yeah. be like that. So yeah, Daryl, thank you, Sandra. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Queen. I want to first off mention I am DEI by love and passion of it, not really trained as you ladies are. So I'm going to give the regular person perspective of some of these things. But I think the reason we have to humanize the workplace because the workplace is the human now. Um, with COVID going on, my children are in the same room with me right now. My wife's watching our baby, like it's all the same place now. So if those things kind of spill over into the home, it's probably more evident because mommy's crying or daddy's upset and things of that nature. So I think it's more important to humanize now because the lines are blurred. Um, there's not so much a workplace versus the home life. It's the, all one the same. So I think as we go forward, we have to be cognizant of that to make sure we know that people are human. They're not just putting out output and making products for us or actually making a difference in their life and our lives at the same time. Thank you. Thank you. And also awesome, <laughs> especially, especially from the, the parent perspective, right <laughs> there, you know, a few years ago, we were laughing at the BBC guy, you know, hiding <laughs> yeah. his kid or mama was a ninja <laughs> playing, hiding the kids. And now it's normal. And I'm glad right. that it's normal. I'm glad that something is happening. And also to tie into what everybody is sharing right now. If you don't add in DEI, if you choose to ignore DEI, you're missing out on a potential audience which you can tap into, but I'll leave the rest up to, you know, my, my guest speakers and add in some, some salt and some, some hot sauce as well. <laughs> Going up to the next question, Sandra, can you share a reason why leaders cannot afford to ignore diversity, equity, and inclusion? Yeah. And I think uh, Janae really hit um, kind of the, the nail on this and, and it's really about the business opportunity. I think on one hand, of course, there's the ethical imperative, the empathic imperative for businesses to think of their people as people rather yeah. than as um, you know, as, numbers. Uh, units, <laughs> yeah, units of value yeah. numbers. Um, but I think there's secondly this question of uh, lost productivity, as Janae mentioned, in terms of people not feeling like they're um, like they belong in the workforce. But I think secondly, there's the fact that diversity and I come from innovation. I've worked in the tech sector for the past ten years, and we always talk about innovation as being anchored in diversity. We talk mm. about that from 
diverse perspectives, putting different people in a room together who don't come from the same backgrounds, who don't come, don't share the same disciplines. That's where we get new ideas. That's where we're able to get out of the status quo. And so for me, how can you think of a future of innovation without diversity? To me, it goes hand in hand. And I think it's a question of expanding our definition of diversity. And I think uh, right now, leaders today, when we think of innovation, it's how do we get different disciplines in the room? And I think we need to think, how do we get people from different cultural backgrounds, people from different socioeconomic backgrounds, people who speak different languages? How do we build bridges? Um, because that's what drives innovation forward. Yeah. It's not just keeping people together that are the same and share the same views. Exactly. What she's basically saying is add intersectionality in the equation, because when it comes to diversity, it's just, it seems like a tick in the box where we have a white woman. So check, we, we are diverse now as a company. And what you see now is more and more people are speaking up, more and more journalists, more media are sharing bad examples. I'm not saying that these bad examples are, are things that you, you cannot end, but you can learn from that. You can do better and add intersectionality in the whole equation as well. Daryl. Yeah, I want to add to that because as a consumer, we, we've all kind of probably been in a store or someplace that we're the only one there and it feels kind of off. If you have a, uh, there's certain stores like I wouldn't frequent as a black man because I'm the only black person in there and it kind of feels weird. Like, why is there nobody else like me here? And I'm not saying every store has to be that way of experience, but mm -hmm. you do block a certain segment of consumer because they just won't feel comfortable. And I think yeah. about uh, my family does different things that aren't typically in the black diaspora sometimes and we'll go mm -hmm. places. And we'll be the only ones in the an establishment. I remember being in a Walmart one time uh, in Wyoming, being the only black family in the entire Walmart. And um, that's obviously the culture of Wyoming is very much not, you know, minority driven. But just that felt weird to be like, man, we're the only ones here. So as a leader, you got to think about when somebody comes into your shop, your goods, your services, whatever you're offering, if they always look like you and that's what you want to do, fine. But if you want to actually attack a bigger audience in an ethical way, then fine, because I worry about people using this moment to kind of say, okay, now we're diverse. We have some stock photos of an Hispanic person, an Asian person, a black person. Now we have these stock photos come buy our stuff where they're not actually doing it for the right reason. My hope is that people see the real reason is that if you have these different people around, people will feel better. You get your better output, like Janae mentioned, and it'll just be a better experience overall. Most of these great com uh, companies we have in the United States are very diverse. When you look at Google or these tech companies, it's not just five white guys in the basement is basically they brought Indian people, Native American, Hispanic, all different people. And that made them work out well. So I hope this model continues on for even the small business that sometimes I think they don't think they can be diverse because they're a small company. But um, my team of insurance agents, I've purposely picked different kinds of people to make sure I didn't just have people like me all the time, because I know we'll walk in a room sometimes and it won't be those people. So as a leader, you got to think ahead to where will I want to go in the future? And do I have the right people with me to reach those doors I'm trying to open? You touched upon something that I have to share and I, I'm sharing something um, because I feel the need to share. So I love going to the States. Um, there mm. are places that I feel welcome, but I also won't never go to places where I know that from the outside looking in that there is hatred. So my partner is white and he has been through Mississippi. He has been to some of these history, historic 
let's say challenge places where <laughs> I as a as a as a black woman would feel um a little bit challenged, not a little bit, a whole lot challenged to not open my mouth, not knowing mm -hmm. what somebody might carry with them. So I deliberately choose to not visit certain states, certain areas, because I'm going for vacation. I'm not going for trouble. I'm not going to be <laughs> challenged. I want my freedom and I want to be creative. I want to energize myself. But if, if it hurts for me to not be able to travel with my partner and feel free as I want to be be seen free as well. But I, I just wanted to share that that it's very important for people to see themselves, to be themselves and to be seen and to be heard and to be feel valued. And it, it goes to my holidays as well. It goes to the companies that I visit as well. It goes as the employee. If they see that you're using a stock photo and from the moment that you as a person walk in and see, oh, where are the people that are on <laughs> the website? Mm -hmm. It's not working. They will leave as fast as they came in the company as well. Yeah, and I think to add to that, what you mentioned, every culture is more comfortable around their culture, obviously, mm -hmm. but yeah. there's a way to bring people in. Um, I just yeah. think about if the barbecue element for the black culture, somebody comes to a barbecue and they're not supposed to be there. They're like, sure, come on. Like, it's not like a, no, you can't eat with us versus mm -hmm. the places you mentioned like Mississippi and such, you might walk and they look at you sideways. Like, what are you doing here? This is our place. And I think that's the difference is that you can have an environment that is mostly your culture sometimes, but try to yeah. bring people and say, Hey, it's okay. Come on through. We're fine. This is a loving place. And that's what I love about melanated people. We kind of ex accept all people. We're like, come on, it's, it's okay. And I think that's the challenge we're trying to teach other cultures sometimes to do that. Because I think Asian people do that as well as, uh, well as anybody. I used to live in Vegas and there's a store I worked that had a lot of Filipino people. And they would say, try this food, come try this. And I had no idea to speak anything Tagalog, anything like that. But they were like, come on. So I think it's good that a lot of cultures are accepting of that. But the states and the European countries, I think, have a challenge with that because of the history. The challenge we of know, how we know how this. to onboard people. We just use foods and use our humbleness <laughs> and hospitality with that. That's yep. it. <laughs> Janae, thank you, yeah. you Daryl. <laughs> Janae. So, so first of all, I just, I wanted to connect back to what Daryl said about being in Wyoming. And um, when I was a, a teenager, my dad used to love to take road trips. And one summer he actually took us to Nebraska to this little tiny town because he had gotten a football scholarship to play there. And so imagine there's this, this black man with these three black kids in this little town in Nebraska and people literally came out of their houses. Like we were like a novelty, like they were like, wow, what a I mean, they had all these questions and we lived in California. So it was just, it, I just remember that experience stayed with me, but it, I definitely did not feel included. I was like, dad, when are we leaving? Like, this is weird. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Um, but I, I think, I think the main thing that comes to mind when I think about why leaders can't ignore this as an issue is that if you, I, I think my question is, do you still want to be in business in 20 years? Like, do you still want to be viable in 50 years? Do you still want to have a strong <laughs> in 10 years, right? Like, do you still, is there is a sustainability case that is directly tied to diversifying your workforce simply because we think about our children. I have teenagers and they are in that generation where they care about what is happening in these companies. Exactly. They take their talents elsewhere. So they will look at the representation. They will look at hey, so wait, this is still a thing? Y'all are still racist? Like what's happening? 
um, I'm not gonna work there, right? And I, and I know my words and I'm gonna go elsewhere. So when you think about competitive advantage, when you think about even just new IP and new ideas, and then you look at the diversity of the generation that's coming after us, it is the most diverse generation that has ever lived, period. So if you decide that you still wanna have this very monolithic employee model, cool, but you might not be around for the next 30 years. It's like the dinosaurs, right? They extend. (laughs) Do you still want to be in business? Like if you're winning right now in 2021 and you've been able to get by all this time with having mostly white men leading your company, cool, keep trying that and see how it works for you. But it's probably not going to work out at some point. Not to mention, you're going to have gaps in your talent pipeline. Mm -hmm. So eventually those white men that you idolize in your companies, they have to retire, right? So where's the succession plan? Like, where are you going to get this other talent? And you're not going to have this broad talent pool that does not include women, that does not include people of color. Like, it's just, it, yeah. the demographics don't match up, right? So yeah. if you decide that you're not going to do this, fine. But understand that the risk is you may not be around. That's it. That's, you, yeah, I, I don't have anything to say. No. Let, let's start with the, with the next question. Awesome card. I got the awesome card going up. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. What 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 is your challenge, Daryl, for the leaders? What do you want to address? Um, I guess for the leaders, I, I know leadership isn't. I wish it was taught better in um, business. I've, I've had to kind of learn along the way. So this is probably for a lot of leaders like alphabet soup for them. Like there's something else they got to throw in the mix that's kind of hard for them to understand. So get some help if you're having talent issues and trying to find people to satisfy your pipeline, get some help because obviously Mm -hmm. you know what you know from your experience, but if you haven't had experience finding diverse backgrounds and looking for people, we see it play out in corporate when they say, Wells Fargo says there's no black people in the talent pool. But to say something like that is like, well, you don't know what you're looking for then I guess, because I know plenty of black people that want a job. So when you say things like that, get the help I think is leadership's issue that nobody teaches. When you don't know something, go raise your hand and get some help. It's kind of like this bravado leadership of like i raised myself in my bootstraps let me just do it and i think that's the issue with all this change going on it is the most pinnacle time of talking about diversity inclusion is right now so don't get swept away in the pop culture of it and actually do some research and get some help and say i don't know this stuff let me get some help i don't know this stuff let me read a book i don't know let me get a consultant that'd be my challenge that if you're not doing it the best way possible and you're kind of failing just do what you did to get to where you are and get some help yes exactly and uh 2021 I cannot tolerate people saying we cannot find them. Living, we are living in an age where we can Google, we can use LinkedIn, we can find support. And if you're doing the same thing with the same people by the same ways, I guess then it's right that you cannot find them. So I can totally, you know, building up on what Daryl just shared, you need to find different diversity pools. You need to find different people to support you in your growth. I'm not telling you, I'm not saying that you have to do it all on your own because you have advisors when it comes to, you know, brainstorming. It, you have advisors when it comes to innovation. Why not bring in the advisors when it comes to diversity, equity, and inclusion and get some advice? Sandra, thank you, Daryl. Yeah, um, to me, it's a corollary to what Daryl just shared. And I think it's 
to be willing and open to listen to the voices of those who are part of underrepresented groups and to believe them. And I think yeah. uh, this has really come to light um, following kind of what's been happening in the tech world. So there's been a lot of, um, there's been a lot of critical moments. I, I, uh, I, 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 want, yes. I want to ask something because you mentioned something yeah. to believe them. Why are you sharing that? Just to, I, I know why, but just to give some insights for the people that don't understand it. Because even when you speak up about moments of discrimination, microaggressions, bias, feeling like you're undervalued or um, not fully recognized for your talent, people either don't listen or they don't believe you. Even no matter how many times you say it, there's always some sort of justification. Or they send you away for some yeah. time off, right? Yeah, yeah, no. So then that's another thing of you know tying it to someone's personal life or to you know mental health yeah. um, concerns and yeah. to kind of basically downplay that what you're living isn't what you're living. You know, I know better. Um, so I think it's uh, it's this notion of of opening yourselves up to to believing other uh, the people's stories, um, to not question or judge or criticize. So I, I think in some respects it's, it's empathy, but I think it's going beyond empathy and it's being able to unpack your biases because clearly even when you're listening to these stories and you're not believing the full grasp of them is, is that your bias is coming through. Um, so I think, uh, there's potential there, but how do we, how do we educate leaders on on practicing more empathy. That's, uh, that's yeah. the question for me that I'm, that I'm exploring right now. Yeah. It, it, it makes me think about a story and I, I won't make it too long, but before the me too era, um, people who shared there are, there are a victim or something happened at the workplace. They were seen as the person who did it. You may be dressed inappropriately. You did something inappropriately to learn that. But after this whole me too, people are more understanding about this. And I'm hoping that with the attention that diversity, equity and inclusion is getting, that we can create something that people will become more aware. I, I cannot wait until that moment happens. I have to see it right now. And I'm happy that there are companies that are doing better and they are, of course, they are falling and then standing up doing better, but you're failing when you're sending people away because of you think that they need mental therapy. They mean mental health therapy. No, there's something wrong with your culture. There's something wrong with your leadership when you are providing these services as well. Janae. Yeah, so I, I love what both Daryl and Sandra shared because I think it it hint both examples actually hinge on the core of the issue with leaders. So Daryl talked about being able to admit when you need help, hmm. which, which takes a certain level of courage as a leader for me to say that I don't have it all figured out. And I think some leaders feel like in order for me to maintain my position or my power and in, in influence in this company, I have to always have it figured out. And then what Sandra said, it was about empathy, right? It was about really having the courage to say, you know what, let me listen to you. Let me not gaslight you because that's what that is. When, I, when, you tell, when I'm telling you that this is what's happening to me, when I'm describing microaggressions, yeah. when I'm just describing unconscious bias or even conscious bias that I see happening in the organization, and that you're telling me that it's something wrong with my head, it's in my head, I'm overreacting, 
So it, it takes a lot of courage to be that kind of leader who can actually empathize even if they're not experiencing it. So what I would want to see leaders do the most is tap into and find what I call corporate courage, like mm. to be able to, to actually be courageous, not just to lead these conversations, but to take real action. And that does require that you have a certain level of vulnerability that maybe you have not had to have up until this point, that maybe you've been able to get by and lead without it. Um, but this moment calls for that, right? So that's really what I want to see leaders do more of. And going back to Daryl's original point, if you're not sure how to do that, get help. Like there, yeah. there are so many, I mean, the, the level of resources that are available, even if you don't hire someone, Google, YouTube, podcast, <laughs> like, there's so True, but I, I do have to have a note on that. Yes. The advantage of hiring DEI consultants, the real ones, the real ones, people, yeah, they, they bring in know. other experiences. They bring in the, the level of experiences that they had in different companies, and they combine that in one. So let's say that you're listening to 100 podcasts. They have the knowledge times 10. That is true now, and I'm not doing any shameless plugs on here. So I do, <laughs> but I do agree that yes, like you, you should, I just, you know, I didn't want to like flash up our logo and like put our, the link to the website, but, but yes, absolutely. And it, even if it's not our company, like you should ask for help. And, and Sandra, I think you mentioned earlier when people need help with innovation, when they yeah. need help with, oh, we, we want to release a new product. We have new yeah. technology. They call, they have a team of consultants and they don't mind yeah. spending $5 million to have this team of consultants to help them figure out something that's going to help them make a hundred million in the next few years. Like they do it without blinking. Um, but then when it comes to, well, we have to figure out this people issue. We have to fill it out, figure out these microaggressions in our toxic culture. Well, I don't know. Or we have, we have about a thousand dollars we can spend on that. And that's about it. Like, ask me how I know that's for another show. Okay. Um, so, so I guess what do, I'm do you see what she's doing there? She's plugging herself. <laughs> she's I'm, plugging I'm herself saying, to invite herself to another I, show. I didn't say anything. Be... I didn't say the company name, but I'm saying <laughs> okay. you need to figure it out with someone, someone, somewhere. Like, no, please. I want to add something no, to what you said about the, um, the technology space. Though. I mean, there's a lot of this, you know, the two worlds are separate. I think about tech that yeah. it's like your personal life ends when you walk in the door, and that's heavily in tech and finance. Mm -hmm. And that's what I think has got, gotten us to this issue right now. I mean, look at LinkedIn, for example. Don't talk politics. Don't get too personal. Don't yeah. show your family, all these things. So when it comes to where we are now, the workplace is unhumanized because we kept it so separate. And I yeah. think that's where leaders grapple with it is that a leader's job is output. So I found myself in this trap of thinking something like maybe this is just you're not thinking about the end result versus like, wait, you're really having an issue. And nobody taught me that. And I had to start referencing books and listening to things because I'm not always the best listener all the time. And I can admit that. But nobody teaches in leadership like, yes, you're supposed to get output, but that comes from a person. So when yeah. a person comes to you with something, you might need to slow down and not try to diffuse it because I find myself trying to fix things. Instead of listening to like, oh, okay, you have an issue. You don't want me to fix it. You just want me to hear it out. And a lot of leaders, I'm, I'm probably not the only one. So if you're watching, it's probably the same issue that you're just trying to, what's the goal? Let's get it done. Let's get the job done. That's where I think since we separated personal and work so much, it's harder for us to really get this and move it forward. So now that the two are blended so much, I think it'll make it a little easier. 
but I do hope this isn't just a moment where people just focus on it and try to get some quick money out of like, we're giving money to the Asian culture. We're giving money to black people. Come buy us up from us. I hope that's actually something real happens versus just, just a 2021 effect. And Daryl, to your point, it makes them better leaders, right? Like if you can master that, it's not just about this this specific conversation with DEI, but it's about actually increasing your leadership capacity. When you know Mm -hmm. how to not be so task-driven that you forget that there are people who are part of you actually accomplishing these outputs. So I think that's the other case where like, man, if if you can master this, it'll translate into you being a better leader across the board and you will see the results of that. Yeah, I I feel like (laughs) I was going to just jump on that just to say that I think there will be trickle down effects in terms of just kind of modeling for the rest of the leadership teams for managers in terms Mm -hmm. of, you know, being empathic or or empathetic or being more inclusive. This actually leads to, I think, a revolution. I don't want to overspeak, but it leads to change in the culture. And I think that that will also help in terms of retention. So if you see that it's coming from the top down, people will feel that there's a true commitment. It's not just, um, it's not lit service as, yeah. as we all like to say. Yeah. My challenge for leaders to is to drop the traditional leadership and to evolve in inclusive leaders. So all the elements that you spoke about, empathy, listening, uh, speaking up, being there for people and delegate, delegate, not orchestrate, but delegate to make your team great. That's where we need to be. But coming towards our almost, um, not a final question, but this is a question that I had to ask Sandra. So I'll start with you, Sandra. Um, you You shared a blog about the exclusion within Clubhouse. And that made me ask this question. How do you see the future of innovation when exclusion is being rewarded like the app Clubhouse. I'm using Clubhouse as an example. I know that there are so many other tools or so many other companies or so many other policies or processes that are based on exclusion. So please fill in dot, dot, dot. When I, when I talk about Clubhouse, it's dot, dot, dot and fill in the company name or process or whoever. Yeah, no, this is a fantastic question. And and to recap, in case people don't know what Clubhouse is, um, an audio-only audio app uh, to be able to talk to people in you know, private and social rooms, about uh, private and public rooms around any topic that you wish. And the key distinction is that for now, it's invite-only, meaning you need to be well-connected, so connected to someone to have an invite that has an invite to access it. Secondly, you need to have an iPhone. So I'm an Android user. I've never used it. I have no idea what it's like. So I can only analyze it from the outside. But thirdly, the fact that it's Android, uh, excuse me, that it's audio only mean that we're also excluding a world of people who uh, are hard of hearing, who are part Mm -hmm. of the deaf community. You see very few accessibility considerations in the app itself, you know, live captions, things that would enable more and more people to access it. And to me, I think what we're seeing is something that's very common, uh, especially in the startup space, where growth is valued over everything else. And so the goal is we want it, to, it's a bit uh, paradox, uh, it's a paradox in a way, because we want to grow as fast as possible, but we're going to do that through an exclusivity-based marketing strategy, where we're going to get people in because there's only so many kind of limited slots, which again, are artificially limited. 
And so it creates this kind of FOMO effect, so fear of missing out. I need to be part of this because it's exclusive, because it's elite. Um, but what's really going to drive the company forward is opening it up to more people, to more mm -hmm. users, getting yeah. more people to uh, use the app, expands opportunities for advertising, for uh, increasing revenue per user. So, so again, I think there's something here that the future of innovation is not inclusive, exclusivity, it's inclusivity. It's through creating products that appeal to diverse users. And we see this happening across the board. We see Google doing this, we see Airbnb, we see Uber. They're all investing in inclusive product design. And so why is it that apps like Clubhouse, they're the ones getting all the attention, the fact that it's exclusive. And so, yeah, I would love to hear what the other panelists think. Uh, Janae. Yeah, so Clubhouse is kind of like, before there was an app, there were actual clubs that you go to and those are exclusive, right? <laughs> so think about the, I mean, a Hollywood club, you're standing in line as a mm -hmm. bouncer, like, you know, the whole scene where it's a who's who, do I know you? Yeah. Oh, I'm here with this celebrity. I know someone inside, I'm VIP, whatever the case is. So honestly, I think it speaks to the human nature of how people place value on belonging to a certain elite club like that that is sort of it is outside of tech but i think what the creators of clubhouse have done have found a way to translate that into an app um something you said sandra that i hadn't even considered is how if i if i have trouble hearing then i'm not even on clubhouse right yeah. if i have a speech impediment maybe i'm not on clubhouse and i hadn't thought about how that excludes now now admittedly I've been quote unquote on Clubhouse, but like a lurker, like I haven't actually started a room and I keep getting nudges that, hey, Janae, you need to start a room. Um, and so I, I think I'm on the fence about that because I think for those of us who are in Clubhouse, we do have a responsibility to start fostering responsible conversations and to use our pool of invites to bring other people in, right? Because what we know is that Clubhouse is not going away. It is becoming, um, a hub for quote unquote influencers, although I have question marks around some of the people who say they're influencers, but again, for another show. Um, <laughs> and, so, and so I, but I do think we do have a responsibility because even this conversation that the four of us are having today, if we move it to Clubhouse, um, or we have something. It will be gone and that will break my heart. And no, also no, I, I just wanted to give a side note because LinkedIn is realizing that they were exclusive with these lives and now they even have captions for these lives mm -hmm. yeah that is say, linkedin that, is not off the hook here because they're exclusive with even who they give live access to you have to true. apply to true. even be able to go live on linkedin it's not open to everyone and they have whatever specific criteria they use so um like you said vivian in the beginning it's not just about clubhouse but i understand the concept there. I think the the question is how do we influence change in the apps that haven't been released mm -hmm. yet to ensure that the issues that we're seeing with Clubhouse don't repeat themselves? Because invariably th they will see this model and say, oh, that works. Okay, we're going to keep doing that. And so the next five years we'll have 20 different apps that have some kind of exclusive invite only. Uh, but it's also not new in tech. If you remember, that's how Gmail first started. Mm -hmm. You could not have a Gmail yeah. account if you were not invited yeah. yeah and i think it goes to show that you know clearly especially with new technology like you do have to test it and you have to test it with a smaller group of people so invite only makes sense from kind of a go-to-market strategy perspective 
But at the same time, to me, I think it shows the need to also diversify the startup space, to diversify mm -hmm. and see who are the founders, who are creating companies, who's getting investment, who's not getting investment, which companies are growing and being supported by the ecosystem. So I think it's looking at not just talent within large organizations or existing organizations, but those who are able to create the organizations of the future. And I think that there's a huge space of opportunity there. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a question of, it's, you know, it's, it's, how do also we invest in those us, it's also for us to be critical to hmm. not, I'm not saying not support Clubhouse, but to be critical to see what's behind a company, to see what's behind the management, to see how diverse they are before we engage with a company, before we give away our data, before we give away something. And I am on Clubhouse. I'm not as active. Well, I've never been active on that because I want to be able to connect with people. And the best way for me to be able to connect with people is to look them in the eye and also to see who I'm bringing on on the table. That's for me is very important to see if people have uh, the energy that I want on the show that I want on, you know, to inspire the people. And with Clubhouse, you never know who you invite Are you open, the table. You me? Sometimes... I don't know about that, Vivian. <laughs> <laughs> never know it can go left and it go and it can go right but i'm 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 i don't want the surprise element there and i've seen too many conversations where the element was very racial target yeah that's the thing i i i, I get the exclusivity thing of building it up but i kind of worry about it's it's not evergreen content like once you make it it's gone and i've had people mention like people go in there and say something crazy and they're gone and mm -hmm. nothing's recorded. There's no proof yeah. it ever happened. And there's people that also have these fake profiles that you never see them. I think Clubhouse exactly. is the Lord. Nobody wants to wear clothes. They yeah. made this app because nobody wants to put clothes on to go live on camera so you can talk all day. You can be in a dumpster. <laughs> and nobody knows who you are. And they make this whole funnel of websites. Like, click here to get this. Go to my profile to get this white paper. And they can make a whole sales funnel and never see you. So that's the part yeah. I worry about. And also, it's creating this need to make content all the time. A friend of mine, Sherry Jones, read something about 12 hours a week on Clubhouse. 12 hours is the average time a user spends on it. So I'm like, 12 hours? If I spend 12 hours on one thing, somebody's mad at me. And the reason it is because the content's always new. You never get to mm. save it. So I think they're forcing this model where you just got to keep making content, but the end user will get burnt out if you got to do a, a show every day exactly. just to get traction. I don't see a lasting. I do honestly feel like somebody's going to buy the feature because there's other black platforms that do Clubhouse. There's some black ones out there that do the exact same thing. It's just a black creator. I do feel like if LinkedIn's listening, wink, wink, they would probably just buy this feature because the captions are already here. The network's already there. It's kind of like, why are you cannibalizing your own users? Facebook is already say, on it. Yeah, Facebook somebody's going to buy it. No, they are. Well, Facebook is going to do some. I mean, Mark Zuckerberg. I, I've been told. Oh, I've been told. I've been reading that Mark Zuckerberg was on <laughs> on Clubhouse, and he said, "Interesting." So it wouldn't be surprising if within six months there is an alternative, and Facebook yeah. already has their audience. The only thing that they have to do is activate it, and that's it. Yeah, and I know Twitter is already working on on a feature, so. We're going to see it. There's going to be competition. It's a question of, are they going to be a lot more mindful of inclusion? Because I think there's well, also... after uh... this show, they had better be. <laughs> after this show, they had better be. Because <laughs> I do have people that will mention, like, hey, can you turn your captions on for your live? And I had to remember to start doing that. 
And because um, I was a new teacher, but I think when you mentioned the the invite thing for LinkedIn Live, I think it's I also want to maintain the brand because we've all seen some lives where you just go rant and there's no actual substance. Like I could just go live because people are watching me. So that I feel like a little different. I know it's kind of like I'm saying it because I use it, but it's it's also like I when I go on a LinkedIn Live, I'm being intentional. Sometimes I feel like yeah. you looky loo a Facebook Live sometimes. So I feel like they're probably trying to maintain a professional image um on linkedin but there is a there is a, a real thing to that of excluding people makes it popular because everybody's always like how do i get live access and it's kind of like the club thing janae mentioned like when you get in there what are you gonna do are you gonna dance are you gonna drink you're gonna eat like i don't know i just want to be in there that's what people are doing so i think that's yeah. the same thing with the clubhouse is like i got it and they don't use it so it's like well is it really that big a deal at the end of the day if you don't have a plan for it so whatever platform you use if you're going to be exclusive that way, you better have a darn good plan because you can't use that stuff over again. You got to do it every single day. And that's my challenge with it, that. Even if it comes to Android, I don't see myself using it because I like what uh, Vivian mentioned, seeing people and knowing you're actually real and knowing, am I excluding other people or, you know, being only certain people I'm working with because I can't see you. Yeah. I think the other thing is I'm not excited about having to come up with original content all the time and there's nothing evergreen about it. Like, that sounds crazy to me. 12 hours? Never. Like, I, what else would I, how am I supposed to live otherwise, right? Like, because I'm, I'm constantly, it's uh, it's almost like, it's almost like an addiction. Like, you have to constantly, like, chase this high every single day. And so, if I do ever use Clubhouse, trust me, it'll be like, hey, guys, I'm on this time, 30 minutes, on this one week, one day. That's it. Like, it's not... But I do know that there are people, because you'll see it in the notifications, that they are constantly on Clubhouse and like constantly having to create content. People, people don't realize out. that Clubhouse, being on Clubhouse, it can generate the, the same fatigue that Zoom, you know, Zooming virtual thing, it, it can yeah. generate the same yeah. fatigue. So I mind my mental well-being, especially recovering from homeschooling just two weeks. <laughs> I mind my mental well-being at the moment. <laughs> They're chasing the TikTok effect. That's what it is. If people hear yeah. about you, but a TikTok video with 3 million views, they're like, ooh, really? That dopamine is strong. So I think people yeah, are chasing, uh, oh, it's a new platform. I could be viral instantly. Like, well, what does that even mean if you're viral on yeah. a new platform? Like, what does that mean for your business and your life? And I think exactly. the main thing is the creators, they know this. Everything we're talking about, they knew up front. And they, uh, they clearly study human behavior enough to know that, hey, if we design it this way, mm -hmm. we can get people kind of hooked on it. And then we have all of this content on our platform that we never had to generate one piece of it because yeah. we have humans that are hooked on creating content to make our platform more popular. True, There's but a... There, is a, there is a side thing with the clubhouse is that you never know who will show up. You never know if that person has something positive or negative to say. And if sometimes somebody leaves something negative it can open a traumatic experience for that person or just think like i can't i can't even address that person because i don't know who it is or i don't i cannot even report this person yeah and i was gonna say that um in terms of kind of getting hooked on these platforms there's a great film uh, the social dilemma if you all have heard of it yes. on good, good movie. it really yeah. illustrates this yeah. uh in death and, um and yeah you want to go a little deeper coming to our last question the show ended too soon but daryl let me start with you what is your wish for 2025 i know we have like 
2021 is just starting, but it seems like we have four more years to go. I'm just skipping 2021 until I get the vaccine, <laughs> then I can live. <laughs> so what what is it? What 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 can what is your wish when it comes to humanizing the workplace and DEI? Um, I guess I'll say for me being in victim competition, I feel, I feel like when Black Lives Matter became a moniker and a thing, everybody wanted to say, oh, we're hurt too. Blue Lives Matter, all lives matter, mm. these lives matter. And we're like in a victim competition versus like, we had to say that because people weren't valuing us numerically. You can see it. The numbers yeah. were there as far as you know, homicide, murder, all that. You can see it. So we just had to kind of shake the system. But now it's like a victim competition. So I would hope that by that time, that's not a thing anymore. Like it's just we know it. We, you know, because once Black Lives Matter, other lives do matter because equally you would see it. All the all the reports and the numbers and the stats for money. So that's where I want to see that kind of go away. Where we don't have to go say that. Like you just kind of get it. Like okay, y'all have been marginalized for 400 years in the United States. Now we 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 grapple with that. We own that. We acknowledge it because that's the biggest issue. Is you know, the United States and Europe is they haven't really acknowledged the slavery past. We kind of wrote it off, and no, it didn't really happen. Uh, where Europe and the United States. Where, where have no, they no, acknowledged it? Not acknowledged it. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but a little exclamation mark on that. It's not really been truly acknowledged. When I think about it, I'm yeah. born in Germany. In Germany, they acknowledge the Holocaust. They apologize for it all the time. The U.S. Yeah, is like... a delicate subject because when <laughs> people bring that on and they want to make that comparison with the past, with slavery, it's just like, whoa, that's that's no there's no comparison i'll say it's a comparison because it's at least acknowledged it's something that you at least recognize happened that's the thing where i think about black history as a young man was abraham lincoln slavery harriet tubman uh barack obama <laughs> that, that was pretty much what you learned was a few key highlights versus yeah. the real history so i think at least acknowledging that like this is what real history is the entire yeah. scope of it not just a part of it and i wasn't a history buff but i could tell you i didn't learn much of the stuff I know now until I was a grown man. So that's where I say at least it's not a battle and we can be honest about things and not separate work and home. It's your human. Let's go to the workplace and realize you're a person, you have feelings, you make products, you sell something, whatever it is. And that's the last thing you do. The first thing you do is you show up as a black man, woman, Asian, Hispanic, whoever you are, that's who you are first. And then mm-hmm. you can actually make a product for my business. And let's hopefully see that happen in 2025. I hope. <laughs> I'll keep you on that. Thank you for sharing. And Sandra? <laughs> yeah, for me, I, I really uh, wish that we'll get to a point where we don't have to make a business case for DI. Yeah. And I think that's where I'm most frustrated today, that there's mm-hmm. always a need to provide justification to get to the well, numbers. And isn't the business get... case also a way to dodge the bullet or to give yourself more time to to think about something else because i feel like the business case mm-hmm. scenario there are so many reports out there why are we still working on that instead of working on what needs to be done yeah yeah absolutely so i think it because i think when you build a business case i, I think what we end up with is a lot of performative di mm. And so mm-hmm. I think like you were all mentioning, it's just, we see the images and the marketing. So it's like, okay, where's our business uplift? And it's like, that's not what we're talking about. We have to dig deeper. We are, we need to confront deeper challenges about how bias and inequities from society, from history, how all of that embeds itself into our institutions. And I think yeah. getting to a point where, where we don't have to have that conversation and also where there's enough 
stories, like concrete cases that we can draw from. So I love Janae's mention of corporate um, courage. Uh, I would love to see so many more leaders who openly talk about what they're doing, the successes they're having, and the challenges. To me, I think that that would be a dream for 2020. Yeah. I love that. Thank you. And Janae? Yeah, I would love to see conversations like this be obsolete in 2025. And I mean that from the sense of that we're not talking about out on very surface level what needs to happen to humanize the workplace. So we're really lo doing look backs on actual progress and action and, and looking at data and looking at um, success stories, right? Mm -hmm. um, and then even, you know, more personally, more selfishly, my daughter will be entering the workforce in 2025. She's a high school senior right now, and she's, she's studying to be an engineer, and she's starting in the fall. And so four years from now, she'll be entering the workplace. And so what I would love to see is that when she calls me about that first job and that first work experience, that it is stark contrast to what I've experienced in the workplace and to what other women who look like me have experienced. Um, can I, I, can I give your daughter or every person or every black, every parent that has a, a, a daughter or um, yeah, every black person that has a daughter, please read Minda Hart's book, Seat at the Table. That's a must have for every parent, but that's also a must have for every parent of color to get your seat at the table. Just give her that before she embarks her journey in the workplace. Yeah. But that's my wish is, is really about, let's have different conversations. So mm -hmm. when the four of us get together four years from now, we're talking about success stories and wins and, and also the unfortunate events of what's happened to these leaders that didn't get it and how they're no longer around. Like that's, that's really where I want us to be um, in four years. I'm looking forward to that conversation. So Janae is inviting us to come to Texas, people. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Please do. I would love to. This conversation has been mind-blowing, inspiring, and so much hard. I am grateful for this conversation. I'm grateful for you all sharing your insight. And I hope that everybody who's watching, listening, or reading the comments or reading the captions, please be inspired by one of these people because they are amazing. And also follow them as well. They are all on LinkedIn sharing their salt, their spices regarding DEI. And I also want to highlight next week's conversation or next week, tomorrow's conversation. My mind is a, a bit blur. So let me stop. Let me share the screen. Tomorrow, we are going to talk about time to create more space, basically saying that leaders need to quit or they need to evolve. Watch tomorrow, same time, same place on LinkedIn, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter. I'm forgetting something. We are there as well. So Close. thank you all for watching. <laughs> <laughs> thank you all for watching this episode of Let's Humanize the Workplace. And if you have any questions, please connect with, with the guest speakers as well. And if you have any questions, connect and ask. And I am there as well. So thank you for watching. And until next time. Bye, everybody. Right, thank you all. Thank you.